0: Well, good morning, fellas. We got a big night tonight, don't we? Grizzly fans. <laughs> yeah, I think we got it tonight. That is, of course, if the refs don't rook us. I think Fizdale going to pill it out. We're blessed to have that guy as a coach, I'll tell you that much. Well, folks, it's a blessing to be here with you this morning. It's always such a joy and a treat to be able to be here with you today and uh, join together with you early on Thursday mornings and study God's Word together. And and uh, today we're going to be looking at two letters in the Word of God, 2 John and 3 John. Uh, it's only a total of 27 verses between the two letters, but of course, if you've looked ahead and read those, uh, before, you know they pack quite a punch. There's a lot of stuff in there for us to, to sift through, and hopefully, we have enough time this morning. Uh, but before we dive in and look at 2nd and 3rd John, I just want us to understand the context of both of these letters because it does play into how we're going to approach it this morning. First off, there's a couple of major differences between 2nd and 3rd John. Uh, for example, 2nd John was, was a letter that was written to one specific church. Some scholars think that Second John may have been a uh, a cover letter to First John, and somewhere along the way, those those two things just got separated. But generally, the consensus is is that Second John was a letter in of itself, and it was sent to one specific church of the many churches that received First John. Okay, so that's Second John. Then, of course, you have Third John, and that was that was addressed to just one dude, uh, Gaius, right? Uh, one guy of one specific church. So as you look at the letters of John, we're kind of shrinking in the audience. First John was sent to several churches. Second John was sent to one church. Third John was sent to one person of one particular church. So that's a major difference, and that's going to influence how we approach uh, this morning. The second main uh, difference was the specific context in which these two letters were written. Second John was a letter that John wrote to this church to make sure they kept from aiding and abetting the ministry of false teachers, either by omission or commission, to keep them from assisting them in their false ministry and their falsehood. And if we talked about this that I'd, you know, till we're blue in the face, there were many false teachers back then doing all sorts of weird things. And John is telling this one church that they're in specific uh, danger and uh, you must stand on guard and be sure that you don't assist these people in their, in their evil work, either by omission or commission, uh, keep from assisting them. So that's context of 2 John. Then in 3 John, it's almost the exact opposite of that. It's, it's almost inverse of what we see in 2 John. He wrote to Gaius and Gaius's constituency, the people he had influence over. And he wrote 3 John to make sure that they continued to support faithful ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their ministry. So 2 John is guarding the truth. 3 John is promoting the truth. Okay. So these are some major differences but even still, there are some significant similarities. Now, the, simila- the first similarity between 2nd and 3rd John is the general context in which they were written. Folks, we got to understand that during the time in which John wrote these letters, first penned them, there was great confusion for the church. Uh, there were many folks, Jews, pagans, Gentiles, that were coming to faith in Christ hand over fist. They were pouring into the church, and because of that, these little house churches were spawning all over the place. They barely knew what to do. Their house churches were just popping up all over the place with their own ethos, with their own quirks and traditions, just like all of our churches have our own quirks and traditions. their are in their leadership styles and their own leadership preferences. Furthermore, because of all these churches were popping up out of nowhere, they were in need of pulpit supply. There was only so many apostles to go around, and even John himself couldn't make it to all these churches regularly. So essentially what these apostles did and what John did and with these churches that he's writing to is that he sent out circuit preachers. You know, Sandy Wilson, for example, is a circuit preacher. These apostles were sending out little Sandy Wilsons to go to these churches to, to train the people in righteousness and to preach the orthodox gospel that they had received from Jesus Christ himself. It's a great ministry back then and a great ministry today. But because of that, it gave opportunity for false teachers to slip in the cracks. All right, they slipped in with all these circuit preachers. And what that means is not only were these new Christians with their own leaders and their own specific churches uh, dealing with things that we deal with today rivalry between churches and, and exalting preferences over things that are essential, they were also being exposed to the non Christian. uh, anti-Christian philosophies of men who claim to be Christians, which is extremely confusing for them back then, because remember, they did not have, you know, a thousand-pound ESV leather-bound study Bible like we do, okay? Um, they, they did not have the, uh, the teachings of the apostles readily available, which meant they were confused. It was confusing, and it was especially a dangerous time for the early church that was just starting to get off the ground. Now it's that point that I think that we can relate with these churches because even though that we do have our handy dandy ESV study Bibles that weigh a thousand thousand pounds, it is a very confusing time out there today. I mean, Jesus himself says that we are surrounded by wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Jesus was not the kind of guy that would put a beware of dog sign in his front yard if there was not dogs to beware of, okay? That means that there are false teachers and false gospels that surround us. And whether if we know it or not, they have great influence over the true body of Christ. There's this website that you can go to. It's called thestateoftheology.com. It has some very disturbing statistics, especially about professing evangelicals in the United States. It says that 46% of professing evangelicals believe God accepts worship of all world religions. 36% of professing uh, evangelicals believe that they partly contribute to their salvation by their good deeds. 43% of professing evangelicals believe that science has disproved certain claims of Scripture. Friends, those beliefs are attacking the very tenets of Christianity. The means of salvation. The authority of Scripture and the necessity of Jesus Christ. That's a giant problem. Our world, and our, I mean rather our, our church, the evangelical church even, is greatly influenced by the false gospels and the false teachers of this world. As a college pastor, I saw many young Christian men and women who left home for the first time. They went off to their university and went off to their private schools and their liberal colleges. And they were exposed to the worldviews of their professors and the worldviews of cultures for the very first time. And they struggled mightily with all of these different beliefs. Why? Because it's a very confusing time out there. And brothers, as those who are immersed in a culture where false gospels and false teachers are constantly vying for our attention, as those who are immersed in a culture that's individualistic, relativistic, polytheistic, it's confusing time for us too. And it's dangerous, just as it was dangerous for the church back then. So the question is, how are we to live as faithful Christian men in such an environment? And more to the point, how are we to love and to guard the people in our churches? Because that is what our calling is. Well, the answer to this is to adopt the same principle and application that John gives in both Second and Third John. Our lives must be defined by the truth of God. It's not enough for it to be a hobby or for it to be a compartment in our life. Our, 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 our story must be the story that we just sang about. Our lives must be defined by the Word of God. There's four points that I think we can pull from 2nd and 3rd John. The first two are theological underpins, and the second two are more action-oriented, but they're having all to do with the necessity of the truth of the gospel. John wants us to be defined by truth, brothers, because it is the truth of the gospel that is our only hope. (laughs) It's the only hope of our churches, and it's the only hope of the world. So before we dive into our lesson today, let us first go to John's letters and see what he has to say about truth, okay? So 2 John, uh, starting at verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, peace will be with us from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we've received from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world and those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you might not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd write, uh, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to so face that our joy might be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as is as is goes with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in truth. Again, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we might be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring that up with what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. (laughs) And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and put them out on the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. This is the Word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as your children... And Father, we pray that You would open up Your truth to us by the power of Your Spirit, that You would speak to us. That, Father, You would inform us, but not just inform us, that You would transform us even. Father, we pray that You'd fill us with all Your fullness, that You would uh, guide my teaching, that You would open all of our hearts and our ears to hear what You have for us today. Speak to us, O Lord, in the power of Your Spirit, for Your servants listen. It's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, so there's four points. And the first two or theological underpins that Paul give or rather that John gives us so that we can actually be faithful men in this world that's just simply sideways. And so that we're able to encourage and protect those that we love and care about in our churches. So number one, we see that it is good for the people of God to be united in truth. All right, we see this in 2 John, the first three verses and the first four verses of 3 John. It is good for the people of God to be united in truth. Now, if you notice, in both these letters, John addressed his audiences as the elder. He was the elder, which was kind of unusual. There's no other apostle that wrote like that. Now, when John uses that phrase, he's making uh, two statements. First statement is a statement of authority, right? Notice he doesn't say a elder, right? He says the elder. I'm not just any old normal elder of the session. I, I am the elder, all right? I'm the head honcho for you churches, and what he was essentially saying is that I'm a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I was his beloved disciple. You look to me for orthodoxy and training and righteousness. You look to me to give you the words of Christ because I was there. I am the elder. So it's a statement of authority. But not only that, it was a statement of affection. Because of those of us in churches who have elders, or if you are an elder, you know a primary role of an elder, right, is to be a shepherd. And if you're going to be a shepherd, that means that you love and care for and tend the flock. And so what John was saying is, hey, I'm your authority, but I'm also your elder who loves you and cares for the nurturement of your soul. I'm for you, John is saying. Now, it's that particular point, his affection for these folks, which we see, of course, all over those seven verses, that I find particularly interesting. Because remember, John did not frequent all of these churches that he was writing to. Okay, there wasn't one giant church in the center of town where thousands of Christians went to. They had a coffee shop and a bookstore in the lobby, right? They did not get together for Wednesday night suppers and have chili with these elders, okay? There were small churches all over the place, which means that John was pretty much a stranger to these people, and these folks were strangers to John. But what does he say in verse 1? He says, I love you in truth. They might have been strangers to John, but John loved these people. Now, you say, Barton, that's not very illuminating. The man is an apostle. Of course, he's going to love Christians. Well, I disagree, but again, look what he says in 1B. He says, not only I, but also all those who know the truth, other Christians like you, love you who are walking in truth. What's my point? It wasn't just John, but it was normal Christians from different churches that had their own different ethos, that had their own leadership style, that were united together and had authentic love for one another. Friends, how extraordinary is that? Because we don't really see that often in the church today. As evangelicals, we are united, but we're not often known for our unity in the world today. In fact, more often than not, we're known for our disunity amongst churches and denominations. Whether it's on the college campus with college ministries fighting each other over the same students, or if it's one church exalting itself over another church in the city as being the best church or having the most people in the seats... We're often known for our disunity. And folks, that is not how it's supposed to be as the body of Christ. So how then and why did this church become unified? What can we learn from them? First and foremost, they were unified in truth because they were united around the essentials. These churches were united around the essentials of Christianity. No doubt these churches had their own different traditions, their own little things that they cared about. And that's that's fine, but still they were united. Okay, these churches had their own little things. So we see this in all of Paul's letters. In fact, the house churches in Corinth, they love their own pastors, right? They they kind of circled around who their preacher was. We love our preacher. He's the, the funny guy. He's the most or he he actually ends on time. We, we love our preacher, and, and that's fine to be supportive and, and gushing over your own preacher and pastor. That's fine. Look in Rome, you had the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and they certainly had their own traditions. And, And that was fine, too, unless those minor differences, these secondary things, brew disunity in the body of Christ, which is exactly what happened in Corinth and in Rome. As it turns out, back then, these preferences and these secondary issues brought great disunity. And, folks, it it brings disunity to our churches today. For crying out loud, worship style is one of the great disunifiers in the church. I mean, are we going to be an organ-led church, a contemporary-led church? Are we going to be reserved in our worship? Are we going to raise our hands? And If we're going to raise our hands, how high do we raise our hands? Are we way up here? Are we down here like we're carrying a TV? I mean, what are we supposed to do with our hands, we're crying out loud? And it's silly, but sometimes these silly things, these silly differences, bring great division in the church. And that's just one example. There's many other things that bring division between denominations and even within a singular church itself. Now, the great Sadness about this is that division flies in the face of one of the greatest miracles that Christ accomplished. And it's the miracle that we actually see in one of Paul's epistles, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul says, Christ, through His work on the cross, has torn down every dividing wall of hostility between us. He has made us one, reconciling us together in Him, making peace. Friends, this is a miracle that the cross of Christ unites us doesn't matter what denomination you are. If you're a Bible-believing Christian who follows Jesus Christ, we're in the same body of Christ. The cross brings unity out of diversity. That is a miracle if you sit down and think about it. But the point is, when we allow, as Christians who follow Jesus and love Jesus, this unity to brew amongst us and a rivalry to set in, what that means is that we have allowed something other than this, the centrality of Christianity, the cross of Christ, to become top dog in our lives. And that brings disunity. So, so what Paul is saying here, that it's fine to, or John is saying it's fine to have our differences, even feel strongly about them. But if we're going to be unified in the body of Christ, we must major on the majors and not the minors. We must exalt Christ, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected as priority in our lives and in our churches. Secondly, if we're going to be unified, we must view each other as we truly are family. I find it interesting that, that John was not only Uni- unified in thought with these people. They weren't just like-minded. John actually loved these folks, and these folks actually loved John. Folks, you can be like-minded with someone and not really have the warm and fuzzies for him. You know what I'm saying? I mean, for example, in the SEC, as SEC fans, all of us agree with Nick Saban that Bama is the, is the best team in town, right? But unless you're a Bama fan, you're not going to send the man a Christmas card. You know what I'm saying? Auburn fans, they gave him the nickname, Little Satan, That is not a term of endearment, folks, okay? You can be united with someone in mind and not actually have the warm and fuzzies for them and not love them, but John and these Christians, they were united and they actually loved each other, which is amazing. I mean, look at the language that he uses. 2 John verse 1, to the elect lady, church. That's what that means. The elect lady and her children, members. 2 John verse 3, grace and mercy and peace from God, who the Father... 3 John verse 4, no greater joy than to hear my children walking in truth. Friends, these folks might have been acquaintances, but that is not the language that acquaintances use for each other. That is the language that family uses for each other. And the reason they use such language and had such affection for each other because God's work through Jesus Christ, that's exactly who they were. And as brothers today in Christ, that's exactly who we are. We are family. The guy you're sitting next to, you might not know him. You might go to a different church. If he's a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You are brothers, and you're going to spend eternity with each other. Oh. <laughs> we are brothers in the one body of Christ. Now, John shows us how this happens. Look at 2 John verse 2. He says, I love you because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. The truth that lives in us and will be with us forever. What he's referring to, friends, is our new birth, In the Spirit. It's the same language that Jesus Himself uses that John records in John chapter 14 when Jesus promises us the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, The Father will give you the Spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because they don't know Him, but you know Him for He dwells in you and will be in you. So what he's saying is that we can't have the truth in us. We can't live by the truth if we've not been born of the Spirit. And we have been born of the Spirit. And that's why the Spirit of truth dwells in us. Okay, so as Paul says, we've been born of the same Spirit. We have been adopted into the same family where God is the Father to all of us as brothers in Christ. And as brothers in Christ, we have the same love for one another, the family affection. Now, what that means is if you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian, an Anglican, a Methodist, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you don't really know each other all that well. You're not an acquaintance, and you're certainly not a rival. You're a brother, and John says we are to love each other as brothers. And friends, how encouraging would it be for our congregations, especially the younger folks that are about to go off to college and be exposed to so much... Heresy and false teaching, if they knew that thousands of men in the city of Memphis were united together in truth, loving Jesus and loving to make Him known. That's encouraging stuff. We must be united in truth. And we do that by majoring on the essentials, viewing each other as family, and thirdly, understanding that this is our command. In verse 4 of both letters, John says, walk in truth. All right, we're going to talk about what that means in just a second, but for John, we cannot be united in truth if we're not walking in truth together. Now, again, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but I want us to understand why John gives us this command. Number one, it's for our good, okay? Go back and look at verse 4 in both letters. He says, because you walk in truth, it gives me great joy. He's not just throwing out words there. He says, it gives me great joy to know that my brothers and my sisters, those I know well and those I don't know well, are walking in the truth. It gives him great joy to know that. Why? Well, we don't have a whole lot of time, but a good place to start to understand is John chapter 15, where Jesus commands us to abide in his word, which at the end of the day is essentially the same thing as walking in truth. And when Jesus says we abide in his word, what happens? Four quick things that we see in John chapter 15. One, we will be fruitful in ministry. The only thing that's ever really going to last from this world, ministry, we're going to be fruitful in. If we abide in God's word, if we abide in Christ, if we walk in truth, what more could you want for your church and your children that they would be fruitful in the ministry of Jesus Christ? The only thing that's really going to last. Secondly, we're going to grow in Christ's likeness We're going to actually become more and more like Jesus. Thirdly, we're going to be prevented from being cut off from God because we're abiding in Christ. And, and lastly, we're going to be filled with the joy of Christ. I wish we could talk more about those things, but folks, just think about that. And that's exactly what these early Christians were doing, and this gave John immense joy. It didn't bring him joy about how many folks were going to their churches or who got the right job or who married who. It gave him great joy that brothers and sisters were walking and being obedient to Jesus Christ and growing in Christ's likeness and growing in their intimacy with Him. Friends, our greatest good, the greatest good of our family and those in our churches is that they would be walking in truth. It's for our good. Secondly, it's for God's glory. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he calls us the city on the hill, salt and light to the world, that when we follow him, abide in him, we shine the light of Christ so the world might know his glory and get a, sliver, a glimpse and a sliver of the life that he offers. We abide in truth because it gives glory to God in the world. Some of y'all may have seen this video that just, is a recent video, it's of a, a Christian woman in um, Egypt. And she's being interviewed by who I assume are uh, um, these Islamic Egyptians. But she's being interviewed. She's a Christian. And her father happened to have been murdered in one of the churches that uh, was blown up on Palm Sunday, if you remember. So they're interviewing this lady. And, of course, she's weeping. They're asking her how she's feeling, if you can imagine. But she said that she's fine because she knows her father's with the Lord. There's was a long clip, I can't quote it verbatim, but over and over again, she goes, I know my father's with the Lord. I forgive these terrorists. I love these terrorists. What they did was wrong, but I forgive them and I love them. And one day I hope they would understand and know the love and forgiveness of God. And she broke down and started weeping and the interviewer hugged her and kissed her. Then it panned back to the host of the show. And you got to watch this video to see this guy's face. I mean, he is just dumbfounded. He, he, I've never seen a forgiveness like this. Christians in Egypt, they're made of steel, he said. If I was in her shoes, I would never forgive those people. These Christians in Egypt, he said, are made of a different substance. Do you know what substance they're made of? The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what John is saying is when we are united in truth, when we are exalting Christ above all things, when we're walking in Him, the world is going to take notice. And they're going to say there's something different about those people that meet at Amen every Thursday morning. And God is going to receive glory. So how are we going to be faithful in a world that's sideways? And how are we even going to begin to love and protect the people of our churches? We must be united in truth. We must exalt Christ above all things. Okay, because it's for our good, it's for the encouragement of the people in our churches, and it's for the glory of God in the world. Secondly, we must fulfill God's command to walk in truth, and we do that by following Jesus. All right, that's the, we see this, um, I think the verses should be up there somewhere. We see this in 2 John and in 3 John. We fulfill God's command to walk in truth by following Jesus. Now, that's an easy way to summarize it. It's a little bit more nuanced than that, so let's kind of flesh it out a little bit. If you look at Second and Third John, if you sit down later today and read it, and read it with the eyes of culture and the secular person, and see some of the things that John spits out, for example, the truth, okay? And if you read some of these concepts that he's talking about, it would blow your mind, and it blows the mind for the people out in the world. Why? Because they have a completely different framework and understanding of the three major themes that John talks about, particularly truth, love, and obedience. When it comes to truth for the world, if it's not scientifically verified, there is no such thing as the truth. There's many truths, and you are the ultimate decider of what is true for you. That's how the world goes about truth. When it comes to love, we know they've completely squashed that whole thing. It's this sentimental, ushy, you know, thing that's a transactional enterprise that if you scratch my back, I'm going to scratch yours. That's how they view love. And when it comes to command and the context of religion, they said it's basically just a list of do's and don'ts that you do to earn the favor of God. And It doesn't really matter who God, what God you follow, because all roads lead to the same God anyway. So that's truth, love, and command. Now, obviously, that's hogwash. And if we're going to follow Jesus, and walk in truth, we need to understand what those three things are. So really quick, truth. When John uses the word truth, this is what he means. God's story of saving the world and the person of Jesus Christ. When he uses that word truth, that's what he's talking about. God's historical redemptive plan to save the world, which climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, true reality, the true story out there is not what the world says it is. It's not about us going to the right college, getting the best degree, getting the best job, marrying the best-looking girl on campus, having lots of kids, making lots of money, retiring, and then dying. That's the story of the world, but that's not the true story. And the true story of the world isn't even really about you, even though the world says it is. There is one true story that encompasses all of our stories, and that's the story of God saving the world in Jesus Christ. It starts out with God creating the world good making everything perfect. In the apex of His creation, humanity created them good. He created us to be in relationship with Himself. And it's in the relationship with Himself that we are fully satisfied. But then humanity blew it. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, worshipped man as opposed to God, led all of humanity into the fall, and because of that, we've been separated from God. We're under His just condemnation. However, God in His grace and in His steadfast love, He sends His only begotten Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, And through His incarnation, substitutionary atonement, and resurrection, and ascension, He has freed us from the condemnation of God. He's absorbed God's wrath. He's freed us from our sin. He's restored us back to God, to each other, and He promises one day to make us completely new. And when He does come back, He will make things new. And He will establish His kingdom in full. And friends, when He does that, everyone who is trusted in Christ will be gathered before the throne of Christ, before the glory of Christ, receiving the love of Christ for all of eternity. That is the one story that makes sense of our lives. So truth, that's what John is talking about. Now love, of course, he's not talking about the junk that we see on movies and television. He's talking about the sacrificial love of God that's perfectly manifested in that story, in the person of Jesus Christ. When it comes to command, it's not a list of do's and don'ts that we earn favor of just any God, but it's the command to follow Jesus in response to the love that we have already received in Jesus. And that's important that we hear that. It's the, res- it's, it's, it's the command to follow Jesus in response, not to earn, but in response to the love that we have received in Christ. Let's listen to some of these teachings of Jesus and John. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 22? He summarized the law of God and all the things that he has ever taught and said by commanding us to love God and to love our neighbor. What does it mean to be obedient to Jesus, to follow him? It means to be a person of love, to love God and to love people. Then we see in 1 John, where John says, This is God's command to believe in Jesus and to love one another as he commanded. Let us love one another. Love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, what is this talking about? Notice in all three of those terms, what is central to all of them is the person of Jesus. Jesus is central to truth, he's central to love, and he is central to our obedience. And this is the genius of John and the genius of the Christian faith. Those terms are not separate, but they're all grounded in the person of Jesus, and they're impossible apart from the person of Jesus. So the command to follow God, to walk in truth, to follow Jesus, is a command to love as Jesus has commanded us. And we do that in response to the love that we've already received in Christ. Okay, so this is the command that we must Live if we're going to be faithful men of God in a world that's sideways. Now, practically speaking, really quick, what does that mean? It means that first, we must possess this story personally. Okay, this story must be, the song that we just sang, is this your story in the song of your heart? It's not a matter of simply knowing the story. It's not a matter of earning the story or achieving the story. It's a matter of receiving the story by faith. Modern theologians say that the max exodus that we're seeing from younger Christians in the church today is a result of them modeling the faith they saw before them. Okay, and so what that means is they, they look to the older generations and they saw people who did not take this truth seriously, who did not embody it personally, and they think to themselves, well, if they didn't do it, why should I do it? That's what modern theologians are saying is the result, or the cause, rather, of the mass exodus we're seeing in the church today. Friends, we must possess this story personally. You're never going to follow Jesus unless you've received the love of Jesus. And you're never going to receive the love of Jesus. You're never going to desire the love of Jesus if you don't see your need for the love of Jesus. We must embody this story personally. Secondly, we must practice this truth publicly. We see this in the person of Gaius, and we'll check that out in just a second. But we must possess this truth personally. We must practice this truth publicly have you ever heard the, uh, the old saying that faith is a private thing? It's like politics. Keep it personal. We hear that all the time, right? It's just like politics. Don't anybody, I mean, keep that to yourself. You don't want to offend anybody. Listen, the Christian faith is anything but private. The Christian faith is a public affair. Jesus Christ, I've already told us, in the Sermon on the Mount, he describes us as his city on the hill, his salt and light in the world. Friends, we cannot do those things without being public, Okay. That old adage that says, you know, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. I get, I get the point of that, but that makes just as much sense as saying, hey, tell me your phone, to phone number, and if necessary, use digits, okay? How are we supposed to shine the light of Christ without doing it publicly? Well, we're about to see what that means in just a second, but in order for us to live in truth, you must possess it personally, and two, you must practice it publicly. And so this is how, first and foremost, we act as faithful men in this world and how we love and protect our churches. We exalt Christ above all things. And we live this truth publicly and privately. Now, this is where we get a little bit more practical. Number three, the people of God must guard the truth. And we see this in 2 John verses 7-11. through 11. Specifically, we must guard the doctrine of Christ. Now, this is the essence of what 2 John is about. It's about guarding the doctrine of Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 7... John says many deceivers have gone into the world. We've talked about this so much. But you've got to understand, it wasn't just John that talked about deceivers. Everyone in the New Testament did. Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, Peter called them false prophets. Paul called them pseudo-apostles. And of course, John calls them antichrists. These, These guys are everywhere. And he says, be on guard for them. Now, each of them have their own little version of their own heresy. But two ingredients that were common in all of their heresy was, one, attacking the doctrine of Christ, and two, persuading the church from believing the necessity of Christ. And that's exactly, of course, what these false teachers and these deceivers were doing in 2 John. We get a little clue as to what they were teaching in verse 7 when we see that phrase, Come in the flesh. Okay, what that means is that they were denying the historical and physical incarnation of Jesus Christ, that you could have a full and saving knowledge of God apart from Jesus, which of course is blasphemy and heresy, and John obviously took, took cause with that, right? But John's concern was much bigger than just the, the incarnation, all right? His concern was the greater debate over the means of salvation. If you do a little word study and you do to come, whenever John uses that phrase in his gospel or his letters, it's always in the context of saying, not only has Jesus arrived on the scene, but he's arrived on the scene to act in a redemptive way. So he calls these guys uh, Antichrist because they're claiming to be Christians at the same time denying the necessity of Christ, which is extremely ironic because you cannot have Christianity without Christ. For his Christianity is the only religion in the world that if you remove the central character Jesus from Christianity, it ceases to be a religion. All the other world religions, Islam, Buddhism, if you remove the central person, Muhammad or Buddha or whoever else, those religions continue on because those religions are primarily about do's and don'ts and teaching. Not so with Christianity. Christianity is primarily about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you remove Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as Christianity. So John says, friends, this is absolutely crucial. We must be diligent in guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we do that? Number one, We maintain conservation over innovation. All right, in verse 5, what does John say? In verse 5, John says, I'm not writing a new commandment, but one that we've heard from the beginning. What is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel we've heard from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. The gospel that the church has practiced since day one. John was an old dog. He was not up for new tricks, okay? He wanted to maintain what Jesus first said and what Jesus taught. He wanted to conserve that. He didn't want to innovate. He wanted to move beyond, which is exactly what those false teachers were doing. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead, innovates, does not abide in what we have received in the beginning, the teachings of Christ. What does he say? Does not have God. These false teachers were the Steve Jobs of heretics, okay? They were just innovating all over the place. They had this desire to be celebrity. They had this desire to do something new and edgy and flashy and just mesmerize the audience. And that's what they were trying to do. And friends, that's what folks try to do today. My goodness, there is great pressure on church leaders, writers, scholars, and preachers to be something special and to be a celebrity. We see the whole celebrity pastor thing. I'm not talking about Tim Keller or John Piper. Those people did not set out to be celebrity pastors. They're not. They have a good following, but they're not celebrities. But there's people who are trying to make ministry all about them all over the place, even within evangelical circles. One of the most popular movements right now is the hyper-grace movement. Now, this was started by former evangelicals, but basically the idea is that, that God's grace is so big, there's no more need of us to repent of anything. There's no demand in our life to be holy. We're not obligated to be holy anymore that we're obligated to to be circumcised because God loves us so much, He doesn't require anything of us. Now, friends, this is the gospel of Jesus. It's fantastic. It doesn't require anything of you. Sign up and come to the church. And, of course, they do because that is appealing. You're telling me that God doesn't require a thing of me? He doesn't care what I do with my life. Of course, I'm going to sign up. It's appealing. Of course, it's falsehood. God in His grace accepts us as we are, but friends, God in His grace does not keep us as we are, and that's the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what happens when we move beyond the gospel of Jesus? We lose the gospel. And for heaven's sakes, why would we want to move beyond the person of Christ anyway? The gospel of Jesus is the greatest news to ever dawn this earth. (laughs) Some of you all know the uh, Reverend Dr. Lockridge, an African-American preacher from long ago. He has this famous sermon, That's My King. And it's one of the things I listen to most often on YouTube. It's highly encouraging. But I love what he says about Jesus. He, he just, he's, just, he's just rolling off these things about Jesus and who Jesus is and the titles of Jesus to remind you of how great he is. Here's just a few things he says. I'm going to ruin it because he's a gifted preacher. He says, Jesus is the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the author of salvation, the perfecter of faith. He is the key to knowledge, the wellspring of wisdom. He's the greatest phenomenon that's ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. His life is matchless. He takes sin seriously, but His grace is sufficient. Friends, His word is enough. He is God's Son, the sinner's Savior. He is the roadway to righteousness. He is the highway of holiness. He is the gateway of glory. He heals the sick. He binds the wounded and He saves the lost. That's my King. And that is our King. And why in heaven's sake would we ever want to move beyond the gospel of our king? But that's what the deceivers out there want us to do, to move beyond the necessity and the centrality of Christ. And so what John is saying as the church, we must make sure that we're not looking for something new. Listen, those deceivers, they're not just idiots. They're playing into the desires of our heart. The desires of our heart is to not worship and follow that king. That's the, I mean, that's the, the worst part of our sin. We don't want that king. And the enemies of the church know that. And so they set out to, to lead us away from this king of glory. And so John is saying, brothers, do not move beyond what we received from the beginning. Don't go on to something new because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can make you new. Don't set out to celebrate a celebrity, but get on your knees every single day. And this is what we must do. We must get on our knees every day and thank God for the ho-hum, ordinary preacher and our ordinary churches who preach week in, week out the extraordinary gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the most important thing in the world. It's the most important truth in the world. And we guard it. Now, the second thing we do by guarding it is that we reject those who deny it. Now, that's hard. John says in verses 10 through 11, anybody claiming to be a Christian, he's not talking about any old non-believer, but he says anybody that's claiming to be a Christian and has influence over you or your church that does not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, do not receive him. Now, that's challenging. It's, <laughs> it's uh, confronting. And friends, it, it doesn't seem all that loving. And of course, the world would agree with that. But I want you to understand who is saying this, Okay. It's the the Apostle John, the man who talks more about loving our neighbor than anybody else in the New Testament. He champions the love of God and the command to love other people, but he's still the person that says this. It's kind of like my mom. My mom was the most forgiving person. I could get away with murder with my mom. If you ever saw her mad growing up, you knew there was some bad juju going on. There was a reason for my mom to be mad. And that's what John was going on right here. There was something about, that was happening here that John knew was, was, what could be devastating to the church. And what was devastating to the church? What could have been devastating to the church? To separate truth and love. And John says it's impossible to separate truth and love. We cannot have truth without love, and we cannot love without truth. And that's what these folks were trying to do, and that's what people in the world try to do today. So John says, guard this. Guard this truth in love. It's the only hope for you, it's the only hope for your churches, and it's the only hope for the world. Like Paul tells Timothy, in love we must guard the good treasure deposited to us. And brothers, that's what we must do for the sake of us and for the sake of our churches. We guard the truth. Lastly, we must be the people of God who support the truth. Better words, promote the truth. We see this as the point of Third John. Second John is to guard the truth. Third John is to promote the truth. Now, the key verse right there is verse 8. And in verse 8, what we see is this is our moral obligation as believers to promote the truth of God. He uses that word ought right there. That word ought is about moral obligation. And what is our moral obligation? To work together for the sake of the gospel. That, that That should be the main priority in all of our lives. Our main ambition in life to work together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the furtherance of His kingdom. Paul calls us new creations. And our primary role as brothers and sisters, our wives and folks in our church, are to be agents of restoration and redemption. That is the primary thing about you. That's the most important thing about you. In Christ, that you're an agent of restoration and reconciliation and redemption. Our primary job, our primary focus and motivation is to advance the cause of Jesus Christ in the world. So here's the context. In this context, it was addressed to Gaius. He was a faithful guy who was walking in the truth, and he was most likely the homeowner of this house church. But the issue was there was this church leader named Diotrephes who was preventing John's letter from being circulated in these churches. He was keeping other Christian leaders from entering his church, and he was even talking trash about John. (laughs) Now, why would he do such a thing? Well, look at verses 9 and 10. I think we get a clue. John says that Diotrephes loves to be first, and he's one who spreads malicious rumors about us. Now, that sounds like a control freak to me. I don't know about you. We know some control freaks in our lives, people we might work with at business later today. We know some guys who really love the control they have and do just about anything to maintain that control. Diotrephes was the same way. He even went to the lengths of trash-talking the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ to maintain his control. He might have preached a good gospel. It doesn't say anything about him being a heretic here. But it does say that he cared more about building his kingdom than the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what we learn from that is whenever self is the most important thing to us, everybody else becomes an enemy, and eventually so does Jesus Christ. And that's what happened to As You look at in the verse 11. We're told that he didn't know God. He hadn't seen God. Because at the end of the day, was, God was actually his enemy because he was more concerned with his own kingdom and himself. Now, friends, unfortunately, we see this today in the church do don't we? And some of us have seen it up close and personal. Some of you have gone through church splits, have experienced great controversy and conflict in your churches. And it's the worst thing ever. It breaks your heart. Just all of a sudden, one day, just division blows up in your session or in the congregation. Brothers and sisters start treating each other like enemies. They're sowing seeds of discord and they're hating each other. And at the end of the day, we trace that back. You know why that happened. Because one person or a group of people cared more about their kingdom than they did the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what John is saying, brothers, promote the truth of Jesus. Regardless if that means losing control, losing leadership, losing your comfort or preferences, promote the cause of Jesus Christ. It's that important. How do we do that? One, really quickly, we do it by being hospitable to brothers. Diotrephes was not being hospitable clearly. he was keeping Christians from entering his church. And so the command here, the context is, is that we welcome other church city leaders into our churches to help lead us and shape us. We're in this thing together. It's not us against them. It's not about our own little silos or ministries. It's about the kingdom of Jesus Christ and we're co-laborers. It also means that we actually support the mission of Jesus. Aside the fact from worshiping God, the most important thing about church business is the mission of God, and we're to be a part of that. Secondly, is to have good examples. John is all about examples. He gives us two, Gaius and Diotrephes. Gaius was a faithful man who followed Jesus, who possessed that truth publicly, privately, and lived it out publicly, even at great risk of coming under condemnation of his church leader, Diotrephes. Then you have Diotrephes, who was the church leader, who thought leadership was more about lordship than it was servanthood. And John says, who are you going to follow? The Apostle Paul in all of his letters says, follow me as I follow Christ. Brothers, we need Pauls in our life because, listen, this world is confusing. It doesn't matter how old you are. In all the main areas of life, church, family, and business, there are some serious situations that we go through. Some of them are very ethically confusing. We need a Paul in our life to help guide us. One of you, last couple weeks ago, told me that, Barton, for your sake and for the sake of your ministry and career, you need a Paul in your life. And I'm thankful to God that He told me that because I absolutely do need a Paul in my life and you need a Paul in your life too. Because it's going to be easy for us not to follow Jesus in those difficult times and be exactly like Diotrephes and grab for power, wealth, and self-interest as opposed to the mission of Christ. We need a Paul. Furthermore, we need to be Pauls ourselves. Peter says, for us to shepherd our flocks, not to domineer over them, but be an example for them to follow. Now we say not all of us in here are shepherds. Not all of us in here are gifted teachers and some of us are too young. Listen, you're never too young. That's what Paul's message was to Timothy. Okay, and furthermore, you don't need to be an elder. You don't need to be a gifted teacher either to be a good model. All you need to do is to love Jesus and to love his truth and to follow his truth. And if you do that, people are going to follow you. Isn't this amazing? Paul says, this is so important. We must promote the truth of God. He doesn't say that you need to be a Billy Graham. He doesn't say that you need to move off to New Guinea. He doesn't say you need to have the spiritual gift of exercising demons out of people. What does he say? Be hospitable. And be a model. And ultimately, we do all of this, of course, for God's glory. This is our worship, folks. We don't do this to earn God. We don't earn this to achieve God. We simply do this to respond to the God who loves us. And how do we give God glory? Well, he tells us we honor God by being men of truth. And if you are a child of God, you know that your greatest desire down deep in your bones and heart is to honor God. John tells you how. You follow him. You take his truth seriously. You make it priority in your life. You guard it. You support it. This gives him glory. Brothers and sisters, there's no sisters in here, I don't think. Brothers, may our primary ambition in our lives to be men of truth. There's great enemies out there and enemies of the church. But as we promote this truth, as we guard it and as we live in it and encourage others with it, let us also be encouraged that Jesus Christ has already overcome these enemies. And because of that, that means that His truth will prevail. Regardless of what it looks like out there and how dangerous it gets, His truth will prevail because Christ has prevailed. And because Christ has prevailed and His truth will prevail, that means the church will prevail like like He's promised us. And if His church is going to prevail, you're going to prevail too. Christ has conquered the grave. He's conquered every enemy. And in Him, He is our victory. So be encouraged, brothers, and let us be men of truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest truth this world has ever known. Father, we pray that that would be on the forefront of our minds and our hearts every waking moment of every day. That we would be a people dominated by you. A people who bank our lives on what you have said. And that, Father, by the power of your Spirit, we would desire your righteousness and your word more and more. We would thirst for it. And also with the help of your Spirit, as Paul told Timothy, we would guard and promote this great good treasure that you've entrusted to us. We love you. And it's in the blessed name of King Jesus we all pray. Amen.